So glad y'all are here. My name is Brent, and I'm the campus minister with RUF. If uh, the sheets aren't going around, let's get those started um, so you can sign in and get info from us if you want, and we can get info from you that we need because we will program you. Just kidding. That was weird. Uh, so instead of saying weird things, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read this passage and spend a little bit of time talking about it tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this night. I thank you for the folks that are here in this room. Uh, we know that uh, in this room, uh, this many people, that there are people who are struggling with all kinds of things. Uh, things which they have told no one. Uh, things which they are scared to even think about themselves. Things which, quite honestly, if they did think about them or say something to someone about them, uh, they would be made to feel very embarrassed or very ashamed. And for those people and those things, I pray that you would come and meet them in a very special uh, and particular way tonight. I pray for those of us in here who uh, struggle with judgmentalism and self-righteousness and who our sins may not be the out loud kind of stuff out there that others see, but is the, the inside, the hidden parts. Um, please be with us and speak to us your words of grace and mercy and how you love sinners. And I pray that you would meet all of us. In the, in the way that we need to be met by your Spirit. And I pray that as we look at your Son, Jesus, in this passage, that we would see Him to be more beautiful than we've ever thought and more believable than He's ever been. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Please help me. Um, you know that I have a heart that would just want these people to like me. I pray you keep me from that. Help me to speak words of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can follow along on the screen or in the bulletin, uh, or if you brought a Bible in your Bible. I'm going to read this passage for us, and then we'll chat about it. So this is uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. All semester we've been going through the book of Mark, and we will spend the next uh, few weeks here leading up to Christmas for sure. So uh, verses 1 through 8 and then 14 through 23. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, him being Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. This is Jesus talking. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Uh, We just successfully wrapped up another Halloween season at the Corbin household. And by that, I mean we tricked our kids once again into thinking that Halloween was all about them getting candy so they could eat it, when in fact it is about them getting candy for us so that after they go to bed every night we can pick through it and get the good stuff. And so that happened again last week, culminated on this big festivities of Friday night. And that actually brings to end the whole kind of fall festival season. And what happens in that fall festival season, almost at every single event and thing you go to, is something that parents worldwide hate, and it's called face painting. Now, it seems innocent enough, right, getting some balloons or some stars or maybe some cat whiskers or, for the older kids, a zombie with maybe some fake skin imitating a hatchet wound or something. Um, Sorry, a little graphic. Um, But the thing about face paint and face makeup is that it's really fun to put on, and it is terrible to get off. Terrible. I would have thought that here in 2014, societally, we would have arrived at a place where some really smart engineer somewhere working for Mary Kay came up with a face makeup and face paint that comes off with water. But what you end up doing is you get a washcloth and, like, just do this on your kid's face for 15 minutes. And so the next morning they don't have any any makeup on their face anymore, but they also don't have, like, the top three layers of their skin. And so their faces are just bright red and and rosy. And, you know, so the, the effect has worked. No more paint. But there's still this left-behind awfulness. You know, uh, culturally, I think there's something similar that's going on. And it is this. That culturally, uh, and I'm going to say that word kind of by and large, whether or not you actually buy into it or not, I don't know. But culturally, societally, um, we have done away with any sort of overarching or transcendent idea of there being moral absolutes or moral norms or any sort of uh, empirical uh, things that just transcend cultures, cultures and are true for all times and all places. And one of the great successes, if I can use that word liberally, of, of postmodernism is that it has brought us to this point of thinking that uh, whatever is right or true or good or moral for me is what I will live by. But of course, as the, that line of thought goes, whatever is right or true or good for you is what you are free to live by. Right? We've heard this. Well, I, this is what I believe about God. Or for me, God means this. I can't impose that on you because that would be dogmatic or that would be uncharitable or unkind. I don't know what you believe. I can't make that kind of claim. So what we've done, though, is with kind of trying to get away from any sort of moral absolutes of things that are absolutely right and wrong for all cultures across time, space, everywhere, 
is we've also tried to get away from any idea of sin. That there's anything that we could look at and say, that is wrong. And what's interesting is that though culturally and intellectually and academically, um, we have tried to rid ourselves of thinking about sin, thinking about that there are actually things that are wrong to do, what is very interesting is that we can't get away from the leftover of what is in our hearts. That there is not a single one of us in this room that doesn't in some level, using whatever category and words you want to use, at some point and at some way feel like what's going on inside your heart is not good. And is that you are not right. Or if we could borrow from the words of this passage, that at some very fundamental and deep level, you get the sense that you are unclean. That there is some sort of of pockmark or blemish on your life or in your heart or in your being that's just there. And whether or not you have the reference point to be able to explain that, you know it's true. And every person who's ever lived knows that's true. So the question we have to ask is, If we've done away with this kind of at an ideological level, the idea of sin or or things being bad, then where does that sense of uncleanness come from? Where Where do we get the condemnation or that feeling of guilt or shame? Where does that come from? In the passage tonight that we're going to look at, Jesus answers that question for us. And he comes about it by saying this, you can't blame your guilt or your shame or your uncleanness or your defilement on the stuff around you. He looks at us and says, that feeling and that sense of uncleanness, indeed the uncleanness itself comes from within. He says it's it's in our heart. It's not something out there that needs to be fixed. It's something in here. And so tonight we see Jesus do two different things when, he approach, when he's approached about this topic of being clean. The first thing tonight is that he talks about what it means to be clean. And he does this two different ways. The first way is at the beginning of this passage he looks at what was happening exactly, exactly in this interchange? Because you have these groups of people, you have these Pharisees and scribes who were kind of the ultra-religious uh, ruling class of the day. The Pharisees were like a self-appointed political action committee that was very influential, and people trusted them and followed what they did and said. And the scribes were the official kind of religious lawyers. They put into effect all of the temple regulations and the laws, and they were kind of the rulers in that society. And what we have here is we have Jesus' disciples getting in this interaction or this exchange with the Pharisees and scribes over a meal. And we look and see that the disciples aren't doing it right. You're not doing it right. But why? What is going on here? Okay. Well, in the Old Testament, and this may get a little bit ethereal and weird for a minute, but it's really important that we understand this. 
So according to the Old Testament cleanliness laws, by definitely by which all of these Pharisees and scribes, and even the disciples would have known them, but definitely which the Pharisees and scribes are trying to enforce, if you touched a dead animal or a dead human, or if you had, a de- uh, had an infectious skin disease like boils or rashes or sores, all of those things they would call leprosy, if you came into contact with mildew or mold, or if you had any, corner, any kind of bodily discharge, or if you ate meat from an animal that was designated as unclean, you were considered ritually impure or stained or defiled unclean. If any of those things happen during the normal course of life, whether you intentionally, you know, went for that unclean animal or whether you passed by and brushed your shoulder on something that was dead or mold or mildew, it didn't matter. You were declared to be unclean. And that meant you had to separate yourself from others And even more important than that, that meant that you couldn't go into the temple and worship. And now you're thinking, sweet, I want to get up for church. That's pretty awesome. Uh, For them, it was a little little bit more like having Ebola and being quarantined. Like you were cut off from society. You couldn't do anything. It wasn't just that you couldn't go to church. See, for these Jewish people in that society, the temple was everything. It was their whole well-being. It was where they talked to people. It was where they socialized. It was where they would have eaten meals. It was everything. And so if you were unclean, you were, in a very real sense, on the outside. You were cast out. You were other. You weren't part of the group. You had no social interaction. So imagine for you that you had to go a day without texting or without Snapchatting your friends or without using Instagram and keeping up on what's going on or, or you know, Twitter or any of that stuff. Socially, you were dead to the world. Some of you would just like break out in a flop sweat and start shaking and probably die. That's what it felt like to them. Being considered unclean was like a death of sorts. It was huge. Okay, so these, these laws, they feel funny. They seem kind of bizarre. Uh, people who are skeptical of Christianity, maybe you love to point at the Old Testament and make fun of it and say, what kind of God would do crazy stuff like that? Um, you know, seem arbitrary, I get it. But I think they actually make sense, and here's why. That for all kinds of cultures and all sorts of religious people from different faiths and traditions and backgrounds, all traditions and anybody who is seeking to be spiritual has some sort of thing or things that they do to help aid them and guide them in worship or in their spiritual endeavor. Think about the idea of fasting. That's not unique to Christianity. Many different religions will fast or not eat food or maybe not drink something for a certain period of time so that they can develop a spiritual hunger or thirst for God. And so maybe like during those times when they would normally be eating lunch or dinner, they might take that hour or so and pray instead. Some other cultures will Uh, practice kneeling during prayer time so as to develop this posture of humility in submission that I am less than God. 
Others will maybe close their eyes during singing to minimize distractions so they can focus their minds. There are these things around us which help aid in worship. And I would suggest that these cleanliness laws function in a very similar way. God gave these laws to these people to drive one point and one point only home to them. That you cannot be in God's presence unless you are absolutely pure. That there is no way that you can come and worship a perfectly holy, righteous God just any way you want. Flippantly coming and saying, all right, God, I'm here to worship. You know, here I am. No, you can't do that. His holiness would overwhelm you. It would, it would wipe you out. Isaiah, if you ever want to see what this looked like, in Isaiah chapter 6, he is drawn into the temple and he gets a vision of God and he starts saying things like this, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He goes like prostrate on the floor. He can't stand up. He was in God's presence and he felt his uncleanness. And so all of these laws were symbolically driving people to the point of getting this sense that there is the God that we worship and He is utterly pure and holy and I am not. And I dare not come into His presence thinking otherwise. I must be clean. Now you get this whether or not you know it. Because every September here at TU, there's a ritual that you guys do. It's called the career fair. Now, let me tell you how the career fair works. Uh, you go and you get a suit, whether a guy's a suit or uh, for the ladies, a pantsuit, and it may or may not fit. Uh, maybe a little loose in the shoulders. You don't know. You bought it in high school and you didn't know what you're supposed to be buying. So you bought a suit. You shave your face. Or for the ladies, you straighten your hair with a chi because they're the best. You uh, perhaps uh, put a little cologne on so you smell nice. And you parade down the halls from your dorms and the apartments. You parade down the sidewalks up to the second floor of ACAC ready to do this. You are ready. You have prepared yourself. You are clean. You are prepared. You are going to get a job. It's the same thing. That you wouldn't dare walk up there in your street clothes. You wouldn't go play basketball and just come over in your gym shorts and your sweaty, nasty shirt and your messed up hair and be like, Hey, dudes, I'm here. Uh, What do you guys do, ConocoPhillips? Uh, Why don't you go over there? Right? Like, you would be laughed out of the place. Because you get at a very real and solemn level that there are rules by which that thing works. And you don't get to enter however you want. You play by the rules. So this is fine and good. Jesus would uphold this much of it and say, this is great. But that's not what the Pharisees and scribes are doing. Something went wrong. What happened? Let's read verses 3 through 5. You can follow along on your sheet. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not, uh, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, whatever those may be. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, what's gone wrong in this whole thing is that the Pharisees and the scribes had moved on from the right intention of those laws and had instead become consumed, OCD-like consumed. For for some of you, you're nodding like, uh, where's he going with this? I'm getting nervous. Um, They're fixated on the letter of the law. And so they spend their lives looking at the people around them to make sure people are doing it right. And they've, they've totally moved on past what these laws were meant to do. They were meant to draw you inward to the sense of, I can't come to God however I want. I'm unclean. And instead, they've essentially like bought a new MacBook Pro and they're just holding it and like talking about, oh, this unibody cover is so awesome. And look at the silver. It's really pretty. Or they get a new car, a new Audi S5 convertible. Not that I want either one of those things, but they're looking at the paint job and they're like, man, this, this is so pretty. And they never open up the computer. They never get in the car and drive it and see what was there and what was meant to be all along. They are just looking at the laws and saying, why aren't you doing this? They've dumbed it down. They've, they've taken the whole intention away from it. What happened is the Pharisees and the scribes had become fixated on the traditions. If you look in verses 3 through 5, three different times it says, the traditions of the elders and the traditions of the elders, why are you not following the traditions? And what we want to say is, why aren't you following the law and the intent of the law? But they don't care. They're all about the tradition. Are we doing it right? Are you doing it right? And they've moved on from what it was meant to be. Let's go back to our fall ritual, going to the career fair. It would be the equivalent of you getting all dressed up for the fair and for your interviews and getting your hair just right. I mean, you look good, really good. Like, take a selfie good and put it on Instagram and see how many likes you can get good because you do that. Um, And you walk over there and you look so good. But the thing is, you forgot to see what companies were going to be there. And you forgot to go to their websites and find out information about them so that you could actually be somewhat informed about what that company does. And so when they ask you, do you have any questions at the end of the interview, which they always ask, you don't just sit there and be like, yeah, I'm good. You have some sort of interaction with them. If all you do is dress up and get pretty and you never go in with your resumes and knowing something about the company, it's all for nothing. You don't get the job. And for some of you, you're like, is that why I didn't get the job? Um, Jesus is saying that about the Pharisees. Y'all are so concerned with the outside. He calls them hypocrites. And that word means, literally it means you're wearing a mask. Like an actor in a play, you're not even a real person. You're just parading about to be someone different. You give God lip service, but your heart is far from Him. Could that be said of you? If Jesus were here and He could peer into your hearts, would He look into your heart and say, you know what, you're just giving me lip service. I see the things you do. 
I see the ways that you act around certain groups, or I see the way that you just come to RUF to feel good about yourself, or you get dressed up on a Sunday to act like you go to church, but you really just go to Jason's Deli and eat lunch. Is your heart far from Him? I confess and admit at times my heart is very far from Him. I, I treat my wife and my family really crappy sometimes. I'm angry at them. I yell at them when I shouldn't. And I show up to campus and smile with you guys and act as if everything's fine. If you ask me if everything's fine, I'll say yes. I try and act like I'm just fine and okay. And so in what ways are you doing that? In what ways are you trying to convince yourself and others that, uh, that you're fine and that your life is just fire, firing on all cylinders and you're great? Maybe you've decided that you're going to be the guy or the girl who serves other people. And so you have this appearance of holiness, of being good or doing something righteous. Maybe you volunteer with Habitat every Saturday so no one can really question or not whether you're a good person. And you always want to help other people with their stuff. But if they ever ask you what's going on with you, you, you don't even know. Because you haven't gone to those corners of your heart in so long, you just, uh, no, let's talk about you. I'll help you. You have hidden struggle, hidden addiction, hidden fantasy, hidden envy, hidden hatred, hidden anger, hidden worries, hidden obsessions, hidden self-righteousness, judgmentalism, envy, lust, And it stays hidden. And you may not know what to call it. You may have chosen not to use words like sin. But Jesus would look at it and say, it's unclean. That your heart is far from me. You are unclean. We all are. So what do we do with that? That's a, yeah, thanks, Brent. That feels great. Um, what do we do with that? Well, Jesus goes on to talk about how do we move from being dirty and unclean to this place of being cleaned. What does that look like? Hmm. Is there anything? What about in 2014? Is there anything we can do? To clean ourselves. Is there anything that can happen to us to make us clean? I think there is. Jesus comes to us with really, really good news tonight. But he says the first thing you have to realize if you ever want to be clean is that you can't go about being clean by fixing stuff out there. By looking at all your circumstances and getting all those things right, it starts in here. It starts in your heart, and this is what I mean. What's most wrong with you is not your friend's fault. Your sin and your uncleanness is not just because you're living in a fraternity house or a sorority house and there's all these temptations around you. That's not whose problem it is. That at some point you respond to temptation and you either give in or you don't. And that response comes from your heart. And I want to be very careful with what I say here because this is super tricky. Some of you have had unbelievable things done to you. 
levels of abuse and neglect that's awful. And it was absolutely wrong. And I will never for a minute say it's not. The way that some of you who are in that place are responding to that is sinful. Okay, and I want to be so careful with that. I don't want to say what happened to you was your fault. It was not. But for some of us, the ways that we're responding to those things is not okay. And you need to begin to move forward in talking with someone about that deep anger and that deep sense of self-hatred. For some of you, you think that your problems are your parents' fault or society's fault, or college's fault, or President Obama's fault. I don't know. But you want to find someone to blame it on because what we all hate to do is to finally admit at the end of the day that it's my fault. And ironically enough, Jesus says that's what's going on. It's in here. He says in verse 15, There's nothing outside a person that can defile him that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You can't just control your inputs and think that by doing that you can be clean. Friends, that is called morality. That is called religiosity. That if I just seclude myself from the bad stuff out there, then I will be saved. That is what happens in the worst kind of homeschooling. And you may have been homeschooled in a very great way, but the worst kind is where it's like, no, I can't go into public schools because it's evil. (sighs) Satan's there, and so we have to come be over here. Or that, oh, we've got to be a Republican because Democrats are sinful. You know, President Obama's a a satanic, Islamic. (sighs) But like, some of us, that's, that's kind of what we think. And we think if I can just get farther away from all of the bad influences or if I can just stop looking at pornography, then I will be clean. And Jesus says that won't even work because that's far too simplistic. We don't need anything out there to make us sinful. We have a heart that itself is sinful. It is is stained with original sin. It comes into the world unclean. It doesn't have to be prompted. Itself is a sin factory. And so Jesus says if you ever want to be clean, you can't go from the outside in. You can't go fixing all your surroundings. You have to come from the inside out. The heart is the main thing. What comes out of a person defiles him. What comes out of the heart is evil thoughts, sexual morality, and all of that stuff. There was a woman who I heard this story about recently. I I know the woman. I just found out this story about her. When she was 31 years old, she moved uh, to Dallas, Texas, I think from Nashville. And when she moved there, um, her seasonal allergies sprung up. And she called her brother, who's a physician, and said, Hey, can you call me in some Claritin? This is before Claritin went over the counter. Can you call me in some Claritin? And he said, Yes, I will, but you need to find a doctor there. And she's like, I know, I know. But he reluctantly called in the Claritin prescription. And about six months later, she calls him back and says, Hey, bro, can you call me in another prescription? And he's like, Seriously, you need to find a doctor there. 
I don't want to keep doing this. It's not okay for me to do this. You need to find someone there who you can talk to and see. But he reluctantly did, and he called it in again. And a a year later, she calls him back and says, Hey, I haven't found a doctor yet. He said, You need to grow up, find a stupid doctor, and go see him and let him write you a Claritin prescription. So she did. She went and found a family doctor, went to the office, They gave her a routine physical because she was a new patient. And the doctor's sitting there, you know, running through his list of tests. And he's got a stethoscope on. And he puts his little stethoscope up to her heart. And they're talking. And and he says, wait, shh. What's wrong with your heart? And she gets a somber face and says, what do you mean? There's nothing wrong with my heart. I'm, I'm in good health. And he said, No, 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 no. Something's wrong with your heart. I've got to send you to a cardiologist. And she's thinking, wait, what? I I just came in here to get Claritin for my nose. and Okay, and so the next day she gets into the cardiologist that morning, and the tech gets her hooked up to the EKG and all of these things. And as he's hooking her up, as he's getting his first readings from her EKG when she's on the treadmill, she, uh, the tech at that point was a woman, looked up at her and said, hey, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your heart? And she was like, I, I don't know. I don't think anything's wrong with my heart. What do you mean? And the cardiologist came in and said, what is wrong with your heart? And she said, I don't know. What are you talking about? And he said, You are about to die. That your heart is beating at 150 beats per minute when you are doing nothing. When you are at absolute rest, you're at 150 beats per minute. You are going to die. And she said, You don't understand. I came in for Claritin. And he said, You don't understand. That if you don't fix your heart, you won't be alive. Your heart is in a dangerous place. She looks at him and says this, But otherwise I'm healthy, right? And he says, There is no health apart from your heart. He said, You can either live on medication for the rest of your life or you have heart surgery tomorrow. She had heart surgery the next day. Friends, Jesus is looking at us in this passage and He's saying, there is no health in you apart from your heart. There is no hope for you to get away from that sense, that gnawing sense of dirtiness, uncleanness, that something's just not right in me apart from having your heart totally changed. So how does that happen? Growing up, uh, I have two brothers. We all have birthdays in the month of April. One April, my parents decided, I don't want to have three parties. We just want to have one. And so we all got to invite a friend, some friends, and we went out to this country uh, field near where my dad worked. And it was just going to be a field party. And if you've never, from, never been from a small town, you won't ever understand that. But if you are, you will. And so we're just boys. There's 15 or so of us out there. And it was going to be awesome. We were going to, like, uh, light a fire, do marshmallows, hot dogs, the whole thing. My dad had a a three-wheeler, also known as a death machine. And we were going to ride the three-wheeler around the field. And there was a creek that we could play in. And it was going to be awesome. 
Well, the night before, it rained about two inches. And so the field, which had just been plowed from the spring harvest, was now just a total mud field, which made it even more awesome. And after the course of this five-hour birthday party, we, there was dirt in every crevice of the boy's body. It was disgusting. And the funny thing is that when it was time to get clean, we went over to the hose and we thought we could clean ourselves. You know, like one person's hosing down the other person and they're trying to get clean. But then that clean person comes over to the hose and it's filthy so they get dirty again. It's just this hilarious trying to clean ourselves that never works at all. And that day we never got clean until my parents came over and said, give me the hose. I've got to clean you. Jesus is saying, if you ever want to have a clean heart, you have to come to me. I'm the only one who can give you that. How can Jesus give us that? Because he took all of your dirt on himself. He willingly did. He took it. And he took it to the cross. And he bought you a new heart. He bought you a right standing in God's presence. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, totally clean, totally righteous, totally spotless. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in Him you can become the righteousness of God. You can become clean. That is the gospel. That is the good message of Christianity that God doesn't say, here, here's the hose, go clean yourself. He says, you will never clean yourself. You can't. But here, let me clean you. Receive what my Son Jesus has done for you and be clean from the inside out. Friends, it is the only way to get past the gnawing sense of something is not okay with me. Stop trying to do it yourself. Come to Jesus and let Him clean you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You that You made a way for our sin to be no more. And I pray that we would stand amazed at that very offer of grace. And we thank You that it is not by works, that we could never clean ourselves, but that in Christ You offer us a newness of heart and a newness of life. We pray now that You would apply that to our hearts by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.